Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you guys, actually see you guys. I mean, it's good to have you in the room. Uh, Pastor Benny mentioned it, and I echo his sentiment 100%. It's so good just to be able to worship with you guys, to hear your voice, and not just uh, lead worship to an empty room, imagining your voices singing along with us. But it's so good. I think there's just an atmosphere uh, in this place when the people of God gather, that there His Spirit is in a very special way. So... Hello to everybody that is here, everybody that's in the hall, the arena platform. We welcome you and we're glad you're joining us. If you're watching us online, we are glad that you're here with us today too. Now today as a church, we have been on this series. We're on this series where we have been exploring Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter two and chapter three. And in these letters, what we find is Jesus is performing spiritual surgery. He's performing spiritual surgery on these churches as he addresses what is going on in them. And even though the letter was, each of these letters was addressed to a specific church at a specific time, we're going to find that even today in our context, what he says and what he talks about bears weight on our lives today. Now, I don't know about many of you, but uh, if you've been through surgery before, most of you would agree that it's not actually that pleasant of an experience, right? It's, uh, no one really enjoys going to surgery. It's not like going out for bubble tea. Like, surgery often comes with pain. The recovery process is uh, uncomfortable. There's usually some discomfort involved, but we all know that surgery sometimes is necessary. The pain, the discomfort is necessary for the overall well-being of the person, right? In the same way, my prayer for us this morning is that as we open God's word, we allow him to perform spiritual surgery on us. And that may mean that there may be some discomfort. It may be painful and confronting to hear at times. But Sometimes that discomfort is necessary for our overall spiritual well-being, amen? Is that okay? So allow me to pray, and then we're going to get into God's Word together. Lord Jesus, we just lift up this time into your hands. Lord, as we open your Word, we don't want to just be hearers of the Word, but we want to be doers of the Word. We want to allow your Word to bear its full weight upon us so that your Spirit your Holy Spirit can do whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts. And so this morning, I pray, Lord, that as we open your word, give us hearts that are fertile soil. Give us hearts that are open to receive from you, willing to be encouraged, willing to be corrected, willing to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that as I speak, Lord, it would not be my words that go forth. But Lord, help me so that my tongue is guarded and I only speak what it is that you want to say to your people. That at the end of this message, we would leave different to the way that we came, not because of eloquence or good arguments, but because your spirit is speaking to your church. And so we lift up this time into your hands, we submit it to you, have your way in us, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. So when you read Revelation 2 and 3, like we are gonna today in Revelation 2, you'll notice that every letter follows a very specific format, right? Uh, first, Jesus is gonna introduce himself. And the introduction is very important because for every church, he introduces himself in a very different way, a very specific way. And it, the way he introduces himself is, 
to apply itself to their situation. There's something that he wants to say to their particular situation, which is why he introduces himself in a different way. And then you're gonna see that Jesus either commends and or corrects that church for something that's going on. He'll encourage them about something that he sees that is praiseworthy, and or he'll call them out for something which he's not very pleased about. And then finally, he will give them a promise. At the end of the letter, he gives them a promise. To those who overcome, to those who are victorious, to those who are faithful, he will give them a particular promise. And all those things are specific to that church. They're not generalities, but they're very specific because he wants to speak to particular issues. And so this is how we're going to break down today's letter. The introduction, how he introduces himself, and then secondly, what he wants to commend or what he wants to correct in that church and the promise that he gives to that church. Is that okay? Is everyone with me so far? All right, so before we get into today's letter, um, we really need to put ourselves in the shoes of the church in Thyatira, the church in Thyatira. Now, let me give me a few minutes to kind of paint the picture of what is going on there. I want you to put yourself in their shoes, all right? So Thyatira is not a very spectacular city. It's actually a very small city. Out of the seven churches, it is the smallest city that Jesus speaks to. There's nothing fantastic about the place. It doesn't look marvelous. It doesn't have great libraries like Pergamum. It doesn't have great temples. It's actually very, very normal. You know, it was located in between two important cities, Pergamum and Sardis, but there was nothing particularly special about it. In fact, it was, only, it was only home to really two kinds of people because of its location. The first kind of people were soldiers because Pergamum was a very special city. It was the capital of Asia for the Roman Empire. And so it was where everything was going on. Um, and next to it was Pergamum. And because of its location, uh, Pergamum was kind of like a defensive stronghold that if anyone wanted to conquer Pergamum from the east, Thyatira would be something that you had to go through. And so there were a lot of soldiers in that place. So that was the first group of people. The second group of people was blue-collar, hard-working craftsmen and tradespeople. Why? Because it was on a trade route. Remember I said it was between Pergamum and Sardis, and because of its particular location, it made it home to a whole bunch of different tradespeople, people who traded in dye, in garments, in linen, in bronze work, in pottery. These people stayed and worked there. Now, this is where things start to get tricky, because if you were a Christian in Thyatira um, and you were a tradesperson, which most of the people in that city were, you were required to be part of a trade guild. A trade guild was something like a trade union uh, nowadays. You know, it, it basically guarantees you work. It protects you. It gives you employment. It secures your job. If you were to be considered a legitimate tradesperson in that city, you had to be part of a trade guild. Now, the issue with being part of a trade guild was every trade guild had its own patron god, its own patron deity, all right? And to be part of this trade guild, you had to participate in everything that the trade guild did. You had to be in support. You had to attend. Now, part of their practices were they, is that they would commonly have feasts and celebrations as a trade guild, which would be linked to pagan worship. They would go to the temple. They would eat food, sacrifice to idols. They would celebrate pagan feasts. And they would also, as was the practice in that day, engage in sexual immorality, orgies, the likes of those kinds of things. So now imagine if you were a Christian in this city, you are stuck with a dilemma. 
You're stuck with a spiritual dilemma. You're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You either compromise your integrity as a Christian to support your livelihood, and to, or you maintain, uh, you maintain faithfulness to Christ and suffer financially. There was no kind of in-between about it. Either you were part of the trade guild and successful because your business, your livelihood was supported, or you were an outcast of society, not legitimate, illegitimate as a tradesperson. You could suffer, not, and it's not just, let me make it clear here, it's not just the difference between being well-off and really well-off, you know what I mean? It's not the difference between like making 100 grand a year and 150 grand a year. It was the difference between surviving and struggling. Poverty versus wealth. That was their struggle. It was a dilemma for them. And into this backdrop, Jesus is speaking this letter. So if you've got your Bibles with you, would you open them to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to be reading from there to the end of the chapter. Revelation chapter 2. Let me read it for you. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. His correction. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Is that heavy or what? Verse 24, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, Jesus introduces himself in this passage as the Son of God. The Son of God. Why is that important? Well, you would know in that, if you lived in that era that um, the Son of God was actually not referring to Jesus Christ in common society in that day. The Son of God was actually more well linked to Apollos, who was the son of Zeus. The son of Zeus. Zeus. The son of Zeus. Apollos. He even had a coin with his face inscripted on it which said, son of God. And so Jesus introduces himself. He reestablishes himself as, I am the son of God. I am the true God, the one true God. But also, he was showing that he knew what was going on in that city. He knew that Apollos, which was the main patron god of that city, was a stronghold there. And so he was 
not just establishing his own authority, but he was saying that he knew what was going on in that city. Jesus then says in his introduction that he has eyes like blazing fire. In other words, Jesus is saying this, uh, which is said in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In other words, he's saying, I see everything. Nothing is hidden from my sight. You know, I have stories upon stories about how I could hide things from my parents when I was growing up. You know, one of the things that, um, I don't even know if my parents know this. Hi, mom. Uh, one of the things that we, uh, my little brother and I used to do was my mom used to go out to work um, during the day, during the week, uh, and we were stuck at home as, as, as kids in, uh, well, not really kids, but, you know, in high school. And uh, my parents didn't want us to play games. They wanted us to study and be good boys. Um, and so what they used to do is they used to hide the modem. They used to take the modem away so that we can't access the internet. Without the internet, you don't have games. Ha, gotcha, Right? Uh, and what we used to do as, as kids was we used to uh, find the modem, and we used to plug it in, and we used to uh, game. Um, and then when we heard our parents or my, our mom coming back in the driveway, her car coming in, uh, we would quickly unplug it and hide it back. And then some of you might be asking, hey, Dave, but you haven't thought about it. Um, what if the modem was hot from being used? They're going to know that you use it. Well, huh, we had a problem for that too. We had an issue uh, solved for that. We used to grab a little fan and place it next to the modem while it was running, just so that it would maintain a cool temperature. So that the minute we plugged it out, we're like, very good, back where it came from, nothing happened. Yeah, we were studying all day. But God is not like our parents. Jesus is not like our parents. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight. No matter how smart we think we are, no matter how, how devious we think we can become, everything is laid uncovered before him. So he introduces himself as one with eyes of blazing fire. The second thing he says is he has feet of burnished bronze, of bright bronze. Now, whenever you see bronze in the Bible, it signifies, it's a symbol of judgment, whether it's the bronze lava in the tabernacle or the bronze serpent when Israel was walking through the wilderness, it was a symbol of the judgment of God. And so what God is introducing himself with here is he's saying, look, I am the true son of God, the one who sees everything, nothing is hidden from me, and the one who judges accordingly. The one who sees and the one who judges. So let's have a look at this passage further. What exactly is Jesus seeing? What does Jesus see? So now we move on to Jesus' commendation of the church in Thyatira. What is he commending them for? Revelation 2.19 says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance that you are now doing more than you did at first. Jesus sees a church that is growing. It's making progress. It's growing in its love. It's becoming more loving, more full of faith. It is doing more things. They are serving people better. And the church from the outside looks effective. It's flourishing. It's doing well. In the NLT version, it says this. Jesus says, I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Wow, that's an amazing church to be a part of, don't you think? A church that is growing, that is firing on all pistons, that is making steps forward. Now, church, I wonder, as we talk about that, I wonder whether Jesus would commend us for the same thing. 
Would he commend us for our growth? Let's do a quick heart check, shall we? Compared to, let's say, one year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, are we growing in our walk with God? Have we grown? Are we serving God more fervently? Do we love people more deeply? Has our faith been stretched and deepened? Are we pursuing God even more passionately than we did before? Or have we settled into a faith that has become stagnant? You know, perhaps some of us are coasting on cruise control. It's been a while since we've allowed the Holy Spirit to convict us in a way that has profoundly impacted and changed and shifted the way that we live. Now, don't get me wrong, there's always going to be seasons in every person's life that um, makes different priorities important. You're going to have more time, less time, and all kinds of things there. But regardless of that fact, through every season, there should be a trend of growth in our walk with God. That even if we, let's say, you can't serve in church as much anymore because let's say you're, you've just had a kid and you need to take care of your kid, through that next season, your walk with God should be growing. You should be finding a way to serve God in that season more than the season before. There should be a pattern of growth. Now, let's put it this way, all right? You know, if someone reads diligently for a year, reads books every day for a year, you would expect that at the end of the year that they would be wiser than at the start, right? If someone exercises and eats healthily for a year, you would expect that after the year is done, they would look differently than when they begun, right? But isn't it strange that when you look around the church and you ask people, who are the people that are most on fire for God? Oftentimes, it's the new believer that is the most on fire for God. Isn't there something wrong with that picture that a Christian can walk with God year after year, do their devotion, spend time with the Spirit of God living within them year after year, and more or less remain the same kind of person year after year? There's something wrong with that picture. Jesus wants a church, a people that grow, that grow. You know, our walk with God is not like uh, a kid's toy. Have you ever seen a kid who got a new toy? They're so happy when they first get it. They play with it, they hold onto it, they sleep with it, they eat it, they do whatever they want. Everything is about that toy. But you fast forward a few months, a few weeks, and soon they've lost interest. They're waiting for the next thing. They're not as enthralled by what they got at first. And maybe for some of us, our Christian walk kind of fits into that category. But maybe instead, our walk is meant to be more like fine wine. That as it gets older, as it ages, it becomes more robust. It gets better. It tastes better. It becomes more precious it becomes more valuable as time goes on. You know, there's something wrong with the picture of a church that doesn't grow. Um, the church should be full of seasoned Christians who pioneer the way for newer believers. Christians who have spent their lifetime serving God should be spiritual giants, unmatched in their fervor and zeal for God and his kingdom, inspiring the next generation to do the same. We need to be a people that are committed 
to grow. And this is what the, the author of Hebrews was writing about in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, when he said, by now you should be teachers, but instead you need someone to teach you again the first things you need to know from God's word. You still need milk instead of solid food. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul calls it being a spiritual infant. Listen to what he says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Paul defines being a spiritual infant as being worldly, but Jesus calls us, the church, not to conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, as we grow, our values, our loyalty, our allegiance, our citizenship should reflect more and more the king and the kingdom of heaven. We should look more and more like Jesus. Amen? So let me put this out to you this morning. How much have you grown lately? How much have you grown recently? Jesus saw a church that was growing. What else did Jesus see? Now we reached a point where he starts to correct the church for what he's seeing there. Revelation 2 verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and by her teaching misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. There's one indictment, one thing that God saw in this church which he was not happy with. They were tolerating a false prophet in the church who Jesus refers to as Jezebel. Now, who was this woman? It's important for us to understand that Jezebel probably wasn't her real name, but Jesus was using the name Jezebel as a typology of the Je Queen Jezebel of old in the Old Testament that we find in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Who was Queen Jezebel of old? Well, she was a foreign queen. She married King Ahab of Israel. And after she married King Ahab, she brought the worship of Baal into Israel. She brought idolatry into Israel, so much so that the whole nation turned from the worship of the one true God to the worship of foreign idols. She set herself to oppose anyone who opposed her and her beliefs. And so she killed most of God's prophets in Israel during that time. In fact, the whole nation turned until God said to Elijah that there was only 7,000 who remained faithful to him. And so she was in charge of, she was responsible for leading the nation, the people of God, into idolatry. And just like the Queen Jezebel of old, this woman in the church of Thyatira was leading God's people into idolatry and into sexual immorality. She claimed to be a prophet, and she was teaching Christians that, hey, look, it's fine for you to be a part of the trade guild. Maybe she was teaching what the Gnostics taught that day, that, you know, what happened in the physical, in the flesh doesn't matter. The flesh is doomed for destruction anyway. It's, it's sinful. It's going to be destroyed. Only your spirit matters. Only what is spiritual matters to God. And so go ahead, be a part of these trade guilds, participate in their feasts, participate in their orgies. It doesn't matter anyway, it's just the flesh. And what it says in verse 20 is that she was successful in leading many servants astray. And no wonder, if you think about it right, if you are stuck in this dilemma between your livelihood and your integrity in Christ, and then a prophet comes along and starts teaching, you know what? It's not a compromise. Jesus sees it. God sees it as okay. It would be easy in that moment to flip. It would be easy to compromise and say, you know what? Maybe she's right. It would be easy to compromise for the sake 
of our comfort. But Jesus would not tolerate it. Jesus would not tolerate it. Listen to what he says from verse 21. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now we learn a few things from this here. First of all, we learn this. God's desire is first and foremost for repentance, not judgment. He says he gives her time to repent, but she is unwilling. We have to understand that the heart of our God towards us and towards this world is not that they would be judged and burn, not that we would be judged for our sins, but his desire is that we obtain mercy through repentance, that we return to him, that we change our mind. But if repentance does not happen, if we refuse to repent, then he is forced to bring judgment. We see Jesus warning that he would make her suffer and that those who fall into a trap, those who follow her teaching would suffer. He would strike her children, those who follow after her, those who are the product of her false teaching. He would strike them dead. He would make an example of them. Make an example of them, that's what he says, so that all the churches would know he is the one who searches hearts and minds and repays accordingly. Now, I know this is confronting to us because we don't really like to think of Jesus as a judge very often. We reflect on his grace and we thank God for it. We reflect on his mercy and we thank God for it. But here in Revelation, Jesus says that he would judge them in a way that he would make an example of them. Just like how God made an example of Ananias and Sapphira in the, in the New Testament church, in the early church, in the book of Acts, he would make an example of Jezebel and those who follow her teaching. Terrifying. Terrifying. Our God is not to be messed with. He is not a cute, cuddly teddy bear. <laughs> Our God is strong yet merciful. But there's something for us here to learn from. You know, sometimes we can indulge uh, sin and compromise in our own lives, thinking that God doesn't mind, especially when other things seem to be going well. Just like the church in Thyatira, they're growing. Their love, their faith, their service, their deeds, their perseverance is growing. They look like they're flourishing. Maybe they thought, it's okay. God, God knows who we are. God knows that our heart is generally for him. He doesn't mind our compromise. But God is giving them time to repent. God gives us time to repent. It's important that we do not mistake the grace of God on our life for his approval of our sin and our compromise. We have to take sin seriously. Pastor Amos preached about that last week. So, Bo, God desires for his church to be pure. Why? Because he loves his church. Just like any husband would want their bride to be purely and solely his and he would fight against any man who would seek to break that up. God fights against the forces that cause his church to be impure because he wants us for himself. He loves us so much that he wants us for himself. And then we move on to this, Jesus' promise to that church. So he, he commends them for their growth. He corrects them for tolerating immorality and, and comfort um, and compromise, 
And then he promises in them this in verse 26, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with them with the rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. This is Jesus' promise to those who would remain faithful to him, both to that church in Thyatira and to us here today. Jesus is promising really just two things. He's promising us the kingdom and the king. The kingdom and the king. Let me explain it to you. First, Jesus says we're gonna have authority over the nations. The same authority that Jesus has will be given to us. He's quoting Psalm 2 that says his inheritance is to rule over nations. He will be given the nations and he will establish his kingdom on earth. You know, our inheritance as believers is not just to make it into heaven. I don't know if you know that or not. That your inheritance as a believer, as a follower of Christ, is not just that you will make it into heaven, but did you know that your destiny, your inheritance as a believer in Christ is to rule with him in heaven? To rule with him. It's not just to be a member of, but to co-rule with Christ. When Jesus comes and establishes the new heaven and the new earth, the kingdom of God, we are to be co-rulers with him over his kingdom. Now, that is good news. In Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable of um, the miners, or minas, whichever way you say it, which is strikingly similar to the parable of the talents, right? So what happens in this parable, Jesus says, is there is a man who's going to be appointed king, and so he's got to go away for some time. So he appoints three servants, and he gives them three different amounts of money, And he says, put this money to work. And then he comes back and he sees what his servants have done, just like the parable of the talents. And then the the servant who had been given the most, the five talents, uh, comes back and says, look, you've given me five. I've earned five more. And just like the parable of the talents, the king says, well done, good and faithful servant. But here in this passage, there's something slightly different. The reward that is given to the servant is, If you've uh, earned now 10 miners, you rule over 10 cities. If you've earned five miners, you rule over five cities. In this parable, Jesus is introducing this concept that it is not just rewards that you get in heaven, but sometimes that reward is co-rulership with him in heaven. How faithful we are in this lifetime has a direct correlation with our rulership with him in the new kingdom in the new heaven, in the new earth. The second thing that Jesus promises is the king. He promises himself. He promises the morning star. Jesus uh, refers to himself. Uh, Revelations 22 verse 16 says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You know, it is... And it should be the Christian's greatest reward. That when you think about it as a believer, the greatest reward that we can receive is Jesus Christ himself. It's not even his blessings. It's not even his kingdom and co-rulership with him. But the greatest reward for the Christian is and should be Jesus himself. Did you know that um, right now the experience that we have, whatever experience or encounter that you have of Jesus Christ is... uh, not yet the fullness of what you can experience. There is more to it. Whatever experience you have with him in this lifetime will pale in comparison to the experience of him in eternity. You know, it's a little bit 
like how church has been for us here in this COVID season. If you've been streaming online, watching at home, on your couch or in your bed or whatever it is that you watch it, like good spiritual people, you will know that um, you experience a semblance of what church is like, right? But now that you're gathered back here in this building, now that you're seated here, you can begin to experience a new level of what church is meant to be like. You experience, like Pastor Benny mentioned, the corporate anointing, what it is to worship with other believers. You know what is available for us here now that wasn't available for us on streaming? The ability for us to pray for one another, to speak into one another's lives, to encourage one another, to fellowship and have spiritual conversations, to really be the church to one another. There is a greater experience of the church when we come together. And there is a greater experience of Christ in eternity than here on this lifetime. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the good things that God has prepared for those who love him. You know, there is a fullness to our experience of Christ that we cannot even begin to imagine. And Jesus Christ is our great reward. Can anyone say amen? You know, as we land today, I want you to imagine with me once again that you are in the shoes of the church in Thyatira. Everything that's going on with the trade guilds, the dilemma that you're facing, and then now Jesus has written this letter to you. And you notice that in this letter, Jesus has not promised you a way out. He has not given you a promise for breakthrough financially. He's not given you a middle ground that you can take. He's not solved your problem. The dilemma still remains. Be faithful or compromise. Instead of pr- uh, promising them a temporary solution, a temporary comfort, his reward to them is an eternal one. You receive the kingdom and you receive the king. So what Jesus has effectively done is this. He has called into question their value system. Do they value their livelihoods over their love for Christ? Do they value the temporary over the eternal? Do they value their comfort over Christ? See, Jesus was calling them to remain faithful even if it meant that on, their, on this earth, in their lifetime, they would suffer for it, that they would have to lose out in order to be faithful. Some of them would face bankruptcy. Some of them would face poverty. Some of them would have to uproot their families, maybe leave the city in order to remain faithful. And that's why Jesus said to them, the faithful Christians in Thyatira, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus' encouragement was not that he's gonna tear down the pagan system and institute a righteous system in its place. He He didn't promise that he would give them wealth His encouragement was simply this. In the end, you get the king and you get the kingdom. And that is worth it. That is enough. And this encouragement is the same for someone who's listening today. You know, like the church in Thyatira, Thyatira, maybe you're facing a very difficult circumstance, a harsh situation that you can't seem to get over, that you can't seem to find breakthrough in. And perhaps for some of us, this struggle, we will not see the victory as we have sung about on this side of eternity. Victory has been promised to us, but the when and the how is yet to be seen. 
And maybe for some of us on this side of eternity, we won't experience that breakthrough. The healing that we want, we won't see. The financial breakthrough that we desire, we are not going to see on this side of eternity. But Jesus' encouragement to you this morning is that He is enough. He's enough. He is your great reward. There will come a day when every tear is wiped away, suffering is no more, pain and sin are no more. But until that day, He is enough. He is enough. You know, in 1866, there was a woman called Annie Johnson Flint. Annie Johnson Flint lived a tragic life because it was full of suffering. Um, she was orphaned as a child. Her, her mom died when she was three years old, and her dad uh, contracted an incurable disease and died soon after, and so she was an orphan. And as a result, she was raised in a Baptist family, a foster family, um, and things seemed to be going well for her for a short time. Uh, she received Christ in that family. She became a Christian. Uh, but soon after that, uh, in her early 20s, uh, as soon as she finished high school, she began to contract arthritis. Um, and now arthritis in those days was not as manageable as it was now. And that arthritis got worse and worse and worse until it took her ability to walk, her ability to move. And soon, as a young woman, she was bedridden, twisted in pain, in bed. And because of her situation, because of her circumstance of being crippled in bed, she began to develop bed sores all over her body. She couldn't move. And so she began to develop sores and marks and bed sores all over her body. Soon blindness began to overtake her, and she contracted cancer later on in her years. What a story of suffering. But she was also a great hymn writer and poet. And through her suffering, through all the things that she was experiencing, she managed to pen these powerful words. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, yet the day is half done. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. You know, through the suffering of her life, Annie Johnson Flint died um, through all the things that she experienced, her, her physical ailments, but she understood through it all that Jesus was enough for her, that Jesus would sustain her, that even if her health never got better, she was able to say, Jesus is enough. And I don't know who is listening this morning and what situation you're facing, but can I encourage you that whatever you face, whatever difficulty that seems insurmountable to you, even if you don't see the breakthrough that you would like in this lifetime, Jesus and his kingdom are enough for you. Jesus and his kingdom are enough for you. There's an encouragement there, but there's also a challenge. Because when we reflect on the church in Thyatira, we see a compromise that was birthed out of their desire for comfort, their desire to live. And Matthew 16 says this from verse 19, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth 
where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think for most of us who are living in this day and age, in this society of Australia or wherever you're watching from, in this world where everything is developed and we don't have to face that much hardship in life as compared to maybe some previous generations. Sometimes the greatest enemy to our walk with God is our comfort, don't you think? Our desire for temporary things hinders our ability to focus on the things that are eternal. And what and that leads us to compromise. It may not be as black and white as sexual immorality and worshiping pagan idols, but maybe it takes a more subtle and insidious approach in our life. Perhaps it shows up in what we pursue in life. What is your goal? What are the things that you are really chasing after? Maybe it shows up in how we spend our time, in what brings us the greatest satisfaction. Perhaps our, it's our desire to fit in with friends. You know, young people, perhaps you are compromising your integrity as a Christian just to fit in with your friends. It's more comfortable to laugh at those jokes, use that language, go to those same places, be a part of those same activities than to stay true to Christ in that circle. Maybe it's your desire for financial security in life. You know, it means that you compromise on your faith. Perhaps, you know what, perhaps some of us have tempered our faith in order to pursue our careers or our wealth. Because after all, it is hard to both chase God, to be on fire for Him, and to also pursue wealth as our ultimate goal, right? Perhaps we're fearful to share the gospel because it's more comfortable to not offend people. Or maybe it's something as simple as our desire for sleep has overtaken our desire to spend time with God. You know, 20 years ago, John Piper, he spoke this message which became popular. Um, it was called Don't Waste Your Life. And in this message, he tells the story of two women, two elderly women in their 80s who had spent their lives serving, reaching out to the people, to the poor, to the sick and the needy in Cameroon, preaching the gospel there. And they had just died in a car accident where they were in a car and the brakes gave way and their car went over a cliff and they were killed instantly. And he, this is what John Piper said about this. He said, he asked, I asked my people, this is what John Piper said, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all of their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is glory. I tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, 
a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. And you say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a nice swing and look at my boat. You know, church, wouldn't it be a tragedy if we arrived for eternity in heaven, in the kingdom of God, only to realize that everything that we had lived for, everything that we had built up, everything that we stored up for ourselves was left here on earth. No. Let's choose to be a people that fix our eyes on the king and on the kingdom. Let's fix our eyes on that which is eternal, that which will never perish, that which will never fade. Let's choose to fix our eyes on Jesus. Come church, would you stand to your feet wherever you are in this building, at the platform, all across the different rooms and allow me to pray for us. You know, this morning, I think there are people who need the encouragement that Jesus is enough for you. And there are also people who, if we're honest, need the challenge that Jesus should be enough for us. But if we were to take an audit of our spiritual condition, the patterns and behaviors of our life, we would come to the conclusion that we've been chasing other things, that we are actually living for the temporary and not the eternal, that eternity doesn't ever bear its weight on our decisions in life, that we're chasing the American dream, the Australian dream, a nice car, a nice house, a barbecue out back, good friends, financial security, a good education for our kids, a good life, a good retirement, an easy death, and then into eternity we go. And there's nothing inherently wrong with those things. There's nothing inherently wrong with comfort. Comfort actually is supposed to lead us to Christ because Christ is supposed to be the ultimate source of our comfort, the ultimate source of our joy. But there comes an issue when the church, and I think this has been an issue for the Western church for hundreds of years, is when we allow comfort to become our God comfort to be our be-all and our end-all. And so this morning, if you realize that that is you and that God is speaking, the Holy Spirit is shaking your faith and saying, hey, what is it that is really enough for you? What is it that you are desiring? And you want prayer across this place, across those rooms where all these different pastors are at, or even on the stream. Can I just ask with all eyes closed and all heads bowed, that you just raise your hands so the pastors can see you and pray over you so that most importantly, God can see you. God can see that you recognize that your faith is not where it needs to be, not where he has called for you to be, and that you want to make a change today. If that is you, all eyes closed, all heads bowed, just raise your hands to heaven. And then I'm gonna pray. And if you want, there will be pastors in the physical locations that can pray for you. And then we're gonna close today's service. One last chance, just raise your hands to heaven and then we're gonna pray. Come on. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is like a sharp sword. It divides between bone and marrow. It causes us to lay uncovered our heart condition and our soul, our spirit before you. And Lord, there are many of us here today, many of us who are watching many of us under the sound of my voice who acknowledge, God, that before you, our lives do not measure up. 
that this faith that we have that was bought for us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we have taken it for granted and we have allowed the things, the temporary things of this world to cloud our judgment, to cloud our vision, to become our priority instead of you. And Lord Jesus, today we say that we repent. Today we turn back to you. We change our mind and we return back into your arms of grace. We thank you, Lord, that your desire is for repentance and not judgment. That, Lord, you, not, you do not want to punish us for our sins. But, Lord, you desire that we return to loving close relationship with you. And so, Lord, today we run back to you. We run back to you knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, knowing that you do not hold it against us, but Lord, you welcome us back into your presence with loving arms. You welcome us back into the plans and the purposes that you have for our life with loving arms. You say, welcome back, my son. You are the, 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 the father of the prodigal son. You slaughter the fattened calf for us. You make a party when we return home. And so, Lord, it is our joy and it is our privilege to be able to run back to you this morning. Lord, I pray for us as a church that even though we are in this context as a society where everything is geared towards our comfort and our instant gratification, Lord, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, that you would be our great reward, that we would not be satisfied living a life which is comfortable, which, is, uh, which satisfies just our earthly desires, but Lord, that you would be our primary goal, your kingdom coming, your will being done here on earth as it is in heaven would be our hearts cry, it would be our mandate. Lord, transform us into a church that is powerful, one that is not uh, uh, distracted and waned and, and laid aside by the things of this world, but one that is on the edge, ready to implement the will of God here on earth. Lord, create in us a clean heart, renew in us a right spirit. Make us the church that you have called us to be. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for your reminder, for your calling us back to yourself this morning. I pray that the words that were spoken would reside and be sealed deep within our spirits, that it would not be a message which we hear and walk away from, but Lord, that it continues to shape and change our life from this moment forward until eternity. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen and amen.